0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Impact Agenda podcast, the podcast that aims to redefine and expand the boundaries of a social impact career. I'm Evie, and alongside my co host Elise, we are so excited you are joining us in our journey of finding purpose in our professions. Today, we are joined by Ben Zevenbergen.
1: Hi, Ben. We're so excited to finally welcome you onto the podcast. So a little bit of background for our listeners, Ben works in Google's responsible innovation team as an ethics and philosophy of technology advisor. Before joining Google, he worked as a tech law attorney, a policy advisor in the European Parliament of Internet Policy, did a PhD at Oxford, and a postdoc at Princeton. Very impressive. Yes. <laughs> His work has always focused on the intersection of human society and technology design. Ben draws from various academic disciplines and professional practices to constructively work through and improve technology. We are so thrilled to have you, Ben, in large part because of all of those interdisciplinary areas you cover and can't wait to chat about impact through technology and all the work you've done. So thanks for being here.
2: Thanks for having me. great to be here
1: yes awesome so today we're going to focus on two main topics to guide our conversation the first is working as a responsible innovation ethics and policy advisor at google and the second is the broad topic of ethics in technology so diving in right away ben you lead as a responsible innovation ethics and policy advisor at google Tell us about your journey to this role, please. And how have your academic disciplines or any other experiences led you to and prepared you for this role?
2: That's that's a great question, Um, because the role I have is very sort of tailor made for myself by me in some ways. Um, So. I, th- I think I'll start the journey as, uh, you know, I used to be a musician, actually, oh, wow. way back. Um, Which
0: instrument did you play?
2: I played drums in in London and bands. And I went to music school and I was working at a record company. Wow. And um, what I noticed at the times so this was in the early 2000s, um, when I finished high school, um, I noticed that the people at the record company weren't felt threatened by the internet. And, you know, they were selling CDs and so, and they wanted to continue that business model. Obviously, you know, it's hard to get in there as a competitor. Um, and so they asked employees whether people were file sharing on the internet using you know, Napster and LimeWire and, and all those old apps. Um, and, you know, we work. We're, the young kids at the company were definitely file sharing. And we told them, like, that's the way that people access music and they better get with the times. And they said no you you all need to get off. we're gonna you know, do a big dragnet. we're gonna find everyone and sue people who uh you know illegally share our content and I think that was the moment where I realized that I need to address this problem constructively rather than destructively because the internet has had and still has so much promise uh and it shouldn't be shut down just because people wanted to keep selling their their discs um So I I thought, you know, this is clearly a copyright issue. I looked into copyright, found it super interesting. So I decided, okay, I'm going to go study law and then become a copyright lawyer and then help these companies fight, you know, the big aged uh, music businesses. And um, went to study law back in the Netherlands, uh, where, where I'm originally from. I uh, found it quite boring, honestly. <laughs> For, in, in the Netherlands, you study law uh, as mm-hmm. undergraduate, and it's it's a bit more theory. You know, the questions of tech law and intellectual property and things like that. Um did my master's in that as well, and it was called information law. Um, and then I went to work as an attorney, and what I found was that the laws that we had in our books, so that the toolkit that I had as an attorney, was dated. It, it was like having screwdrivers that didn't screw particularly well anymore because the laws were written in different ages, different technological ages. Um, but they were being applied today or you know, 12, 15 years ago, whenever that was. And um, what was really worrying me was that, you know, it was hard to advise our clients on how to interpret the laws and give them the signals from society on what was expected from them
1: um,
2: then we'd often you, know, you have to go to the court and argue your case and interpret the words of the law and you know the words from this sort of satellite era or the CD selling era how what do they mean in the new context and so you'd really need to get back to first principles really of information governance rather than actually you know, being able to use your own tools so it, was, it started to get very ethical and philosophical in nature already um, so at some point, a position came up in the European Parliament to advise a Dutch politician on internet issues. And um, I just jumped ship. I just switched careers, basically. I thought, you know, my toolbox is too, um, what's the right word? It's, it's too blunt, I think it is, to actually do my job well. So, And there was so much happening at the EU at the time. Um, yeah, I think we can all agree that the EU is currently the, the forerunner in regulating digital technologies. Um, so it was just a really exciting time to be there. Lots of laws were being reviewed. We were part of all of it. Um, what I realized there is that a lot of politicians, uh, you know, bless their hearts, and they're trying really hard, but they just didn't really understand the technologies that we were working with. Lots of anecdotes from those days. Um, but it was just a bit. It suddenly it, it occurred to me that I spent most of my time stopping bad laws from happening, rather than actually writing good laws mm. um, or you know pushing good things through. There's sort of you know this like shield that I had up right, instead of this constructive approach that I like to bring to things. Um, So I I went to academia, I did a PhD at this interdisciplinary research center at the University of Oxford, which was great. They allowed us to look around and the philosophers at the university said that I was asking philosophical questions. Uh, I'd never really thought about philosophy previously, but it was true, I found, as I engaged with them. Um, So I started finding my way in practical ethics. Um, Then I came to, to you guys, to Princeton in 2016, to continue that journey at the Center for IT Policy, also working with the Center for Human Values. Uh, Wonderful three years, really learned what it it takes to apply ethics to problems in computer science. Um, And then in that time, we organized a lot of workshops at Princeton, uh, where we'd invite people from governments, from companies, from other universities, um, and function as a bit of a Switzerland, someone called it once, a sort of neutral space where difficult uh, tech policy and tech ethics questions could be discussed. Um, And I just met a lot of people uh, and I've always found the people from Google to be very constructive and self-critical and actually quite humble. So I started working with some of them uh, and then one thing led to another and uh, they offered me a job. Um, And then another bunch of things happened and someone asked me, whether I could write my own job description. Um, and so that was an interesting year. I had to just figure out what does an ethicist do at a company like Google? Um, so yeah, there was kind of a long story, but that's how I had these twists and turns which shaped it into what I'm trying to do today.
0: That's awesome. It's really cool to see how your journey kind of was spurred by just your interest in just different topics at the time, whether that be your interest in music, then kind of like the advent of the internet, and then like, figuring out kind of a job um, opening that came out that was completely out of left field. Um, I think that sometimes, you know, there's this idea that everyone has like their life planned out, especially these adults who have like really crazy, great careers. But it's really cool to hear how from your perspective, it's just kind of been you furthering your own interest, um, specifically surrounding kind of like tech, and then how it's kind of built into this interest in tech and ethics. And when you said at the end about um, joining Google and everyone was figuring out what an ethicist is supposed to do, we would love to ask you, how exactly did you navigate this? And how has your responsibilities kind of grown? And I assume at the time when you were joining Google, you know, this conversation about like ethical tech and like, what is the role of tech companies in upholding just like ethics or human rights and morals was like probably really especially strong at that time.
2: Yeah. Um, so I wasn't the first philosopher or ethicist at Google, but I think I was one of the first. Mm-hmm. um so there were a few people who had come and gone before me um and then at the time there were a few people trying to figure out similar questions and we all came actually from quite different backgrounds there were some you know, classically trained philosophers i wasn't i'm a classically trained lawyer uh but okay. i sort of stumbled into ethics and philosophy during my phd and postdoc but learned it in a specific way um so i ever since i've just been sort of schooling myself on things that i've missed along the way
1: Um,
2: i think the hardest thing to do was to figure out how the things that we do in the academic world you know the methods and the ways that we create knowledge and argue with each other um how to apply that in an engineering context yeah. Um, fortunately, I had lots of experience working with computer scientists. Um, you know, as a lawyer, then policy advisor, then my PhD thesis was very much about computer science, and then my postdoc as well. So I, I knew the the language very well. I knew the ways of thinking. You know, the ways that you can conceptualize systems and then work through the parts and um, I think also understanding the mindset of people that work in tech and that have gone through computer science or engineering degrees. It's a particular mindset you get there um, of how to optimally and efficiently and um, quickly solve problems uh, in a way that's scalable and things like that. So like those types of things did help me a lot. Um, But what I then did with, with that background of understanding more or less, who I was dealing with um, from a ser- stereotypical point of view. I just went into the company and was introduced to everything and everyone, and just talked to everyone and just asked them about what it is that they're doing. Um, and then asked a whole series of questions on how they think about their own ethics. Uh, mm-hmm. So, how ethics applies to their work or how they work through ethical tensions with their teammates, uh, for example. Um, And I've done that together with other ethicists as well and other philosophers, just so we all get a shared understanding of, you know, what is the sort of, you know, the the foundational starting point uh, from which we can go. And what we noticed was that, um, you know, I can't speak for everyone at this company, but in general, I noticed that people had very strong moral compasses or maybe a desire to have strong moral compasses. Um, but not the vocabulary and the methods to articulate them properly. Um, so one thing I realized was that we needed to you know, capitalize on those positive intentions that people had, um, but that they needed to also be able to come out in team meetings, especially when it, things you know, would get very tough or tricky or when things needed to be done quickly. I still wanted people to bring out their positive intentions in a way that others would understand is an ethical conversation rather than just an opinion about a certain thing. Um, So, yeah, that's been really interesting to figure out how to build and scaffold that effort. Um, I should say. That's very much sort of a top, no, sorry, a bottom up approach to sort of changing the ethical culture of how engineers communicate and think through their, you know, their designs. Um, I think that could be done because a lot of work had been done prior to me arriving on things like, you know, Google's AI principles. Um, those are seven things that the company does and seven or four things that the company doesn't do. Um. Uh, very interesting to have a look at those. You might want to link to those as well in, in the show notes because they really do form a somewhat of a constitution for what the company does and how we hold each other accountable. Um, but they need a lot of interpretation. And I think that interpretive capacity is what philosophy and ethics can really bring to the table. And then obviously those things will be in tension in different ways depending on the technology and the context of launch. So those tensions are also really interesting for ethicists to work through and to show others how to work through them constructively, even when we're not in the room um, and they have to make those decisions themselves. Um, So, yeah, we've set up a whole bunch of programs, educational structures. Um, workshops that are very in-depth for four to six hours or even more with teams to really dive into those tensions that they're facing in their day-to-day. We use bespoke science fiction um, stories that we write about teams just so that we can take them out of their day-to-day work and place them five years into the future and then really think through what is it that we want them to think about In a way that they can, that their conclusions can be applied today, because if they can sort of role play something in the future, uh, that will force them to think through the issues that they need to confront today and not just avoid them and leave them to the future. You make ethical tensions foreseeable in that way. Obviously, it's limited in lots of ways, but it's a very good way to get started on teaching these methods of thinking that aren't inherent to the engineering mindset.
0: and just to add on to that um, I wanted to ask what exactly are these big issues like in 5 to 10 years you guys are kind of considering at Google because I assume that what those were are very different from what they were 5 and even 10 years ago
2: yeah there are people that do that sort of you know corporate wise scenario planning Mm -hmm. Um, I think what we're trying to achieve is slightly different we're not trying to predicts you know, markets and, 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 and political environments in in five or ten years time but what we're trying to do is make the current ethical tensions very explicit by putting them into a situation where technology has been launched uh, and it's it might have been launched for a while so people started using it and people started relating to each other differently or they've started relating to information differently and that's had different effects so we're not trying to predict the future necessarily. We're trying to make use of people's imagination to think through the problems that they're actually facing today uh, or the things that they will be facing quite soon.
1: That makes sense. It's really cool, Ben, that all of your work, it seems, is very human-centric. And by human-centric, in your case, it's working with all of the awesome, some of the smartest innovators in the whole world at Google. So I think that's fantastic. And I also think it's really cool what you just shared with me and Evie that in your experience out of the many Individuals at Google you've worked with so far, you find them to have strong ethics, and I think that's really positive to hear and really interesting. Especially because you know at this time when you know AI large large language models are being introduced to society at wide scale, I think so many people are concerned by big big tech companies like Google and kind of what ethics does the company have? Do they care about the well being of society and you know potential risks surrounding all this technology? So. That's another interesting thing maybe you can comment on a little bit. And we would also kind of love to hear a little bit more. What are kind of the big picture goals of your role? Because you've definitely mentioned and given some examples, and I think we kind of all understand more or less, but would love to hear kind of concretely how you are defining and evaluating your success with your role at Google and your fellow team of And then how do you kind of tangibly measure that impact? Because I assume some of our listeners right now are hearing what you're saying and being like, okay, Google through your work is doing is attempting to, you know, educate all of your kind of Google top innovators and run these awesome workshops. What makes it, you know, different than, you know, general kind of, you know, curriculum, staff training at other places? And how do you know that it's really going to have kind of a strong effect on the line?
2: Yeah, so there are a lot of other programs happening at the company um, that hold people to account uh, and that constructively work to building technologies or technologies upon technologies um, that ensure they do the right thing or, you know, that certain risks are are mitigated uh, in the most effective ways. Um, So I just gave you a, a sketch of the things that I'm mostly working on right now. Um, I think what's really important is the review processes, uh, where teams know that they're not going to launch unless they pass all sorts of review processes, and um, you know they're not just compliance checkboxes. Like these are real experts that sit in these uh, various reviews, and they give constructive feedback to the teams. Um, and then what we try to add to that is. Get teams ready for those discussions. That it's not a, uh, you know, here's the thing we built. You throw it over the fence and say, now please make it ethical, and you know we'll do whatever you say. Um, but that the teams come to these review processes fully prepared, with their ethical justifications in check, ready to be you know debated, obviously by these review committees. But then you, we try to make the level of those conversations go up by several levels, um, and we see that working. Um, now, obviously, it's it's quite hard to measure that precisely. Uh, we are working with moral psychologists to help us uh, frame the problem, build the surveys, uh, do the you know, periodic testing, um, to really you know, self-evaluate what it is that we're doing. Um, then, um, yeah, you know, those review teams are also keeping score of all sorts of metrics, you know, to what extent has their advice actually been useful and led to better outcomes. Obviously, it's hard to, you know, what a better outcome is if you don't know what the alternative world looks like. So it's quite hard to measure, but there's a lot you can actually measure. And um, one important thing to measure is also just the way that engineers' understanding of their own role responsibility evolves over time, uh, especially after engaging with uh, people like me and others. Um, and then there are very concrete things of, you know, building classifiers that respond to social technical harms. Um, and you can measure their effectiveness quite, quite clearly. Um, so, yeah, there, there are lots of different ways there, there are lots of struggles in measuring uh but you know any philosopher or ethicist will also resist being measured quantitatively uh you know it's a very sort of it's not even a qualitative um discipline it's, you know, the humanities is just a very different beast uh to the other sciences um so i'd say it's all an ongoing experiment um you know we're we're working as hard as we can and the ethicists at the company are very aware of the sort of social role that they also have, um, and it's one where we can just keep staying in conversation, keep improving, you know, sharing what we're doing, involving each other as in, in what we do, um, publish about it too. Um, we've recently published a paper about, uh, actually, you know, it hasn't been published yet. It's going to be published soon, likely uh, on the moral imagination method. Um, so in the next few weeks, maybe months, you'll see that appear. And then there are many other papers that you can find. Um,
0: yeah, definitely. Um, you kind of touched a little bit about the challenges of kind of quantifying, sometimes like the impact specifically in terms of like ethics, and then also like more of a humanities focus. Um, I'm actually studying in the School of Public and International Affairs, so it's very policy heavy, and I can understand like, when it comes to like ethics or just like the impact of certain policies, it can be hard to kind of quantify that. What are some other big challenges that you have faced as working as an ethicist at a large tech firm? And for someone who may want to go into this field of work, are there specific things that you would kind of advise them about, um, I I assume that there are many challenges, especially because it is kind of a role that is always changing and you're kind of creating what that role looks like for yourself.
1: And perhaps too, Ben, if you have a concrete example in mind, I know we've talked back and forth ahead of this recording about what you can and cannot say with your work at Google. But if you are able to bring up an example that would help tackle Evie's awesome question about, you know, challenges, that would be awesome.
2: Yeah, one challenge I... Uh, that I see time and time again uh in myself and in others um and I think any philosopher, ethicist, or even lawyer um or policy person will uh agree with this that you know working in a in an engineering heavy environment uh, or in a computer science heavy environment means that um you need to change the way that you talk about things um And especially the way you communicate your intent and your knowledge to those listening. Uh, We're in a minority at this company. Um, It's it's an engineering company. Uh, That's clearer to everyone. Uh, So what it requires is uh, interdisciplinary understanding. And by that, I mean actual interdisciplinary (laughs) understanding. Just having a sense of what another discipline does isn't really going to bring you there because you really need to be able to speak their language and transform in your mind or translate in your mind the things that you want to say in the way that they will understand it. Um, I guess the teachers will also know that problem of like, you, you have all this heavy theoretic background, how do you... Tell that to you know a first year student um, you can't just throw everything at them, so you got you've got to be diplomatic, mm-hmm. which I think is the second thing that's really important is um you know th- it's not a, a a company of ethicists where we're arguing and you know the the mm-hmm. the person with the best arguments gets to be arrogant or <laughs> whatever it is that you often see at university departments um this is different. You you really need to make your arguments um, in a way that's very humble, um, but still very strong. So that's that's hard, right? Like you you have to appreciate the work that's being done, and obviously, you know, most ethicists won't fully understand uh, the intricacies of a machine learning model, but you need to really understand it at a systems level and preferably a bit deeper as well. And then be able to appreciate it for what it is and articulate your criticism in a way that's pointed and actually serves uh, or has a starting point for discussion for the attendees of the particular meeting. Um, Now, all of that is an art more than a science. This is not something that you can pick up a textbook on. And once you've read the 500 pages, you're good at it. You just have to do it, try it over and over again. Uh, everyone fails at the beginning. Um, that's just part of getting into this line of work, this like very interdisciplinary line of work. Um, I have some very embarrassing failures uh, <laughs> that I won't bring up today. Um, but um, yeah, what are some examples? Um, I think it's a bit tricky because I, I get to work on you know, very interesting technology that's being built as it's being built. Um, There's one paper that's been published uh, about the Lambda model. Uh, You can find that on my Google Scholar page. Um, It's it's one of the large language models. And what you see there is a set of ethical values that uh, we incorporated into the team's workflow that we really wanted them to uh articulate and interpret in the context that they're working and then work towards it and show how they're working towards it um and the team actually wrote up a paper about it because they were so interested in this new way of thinking about a large language model which wasn't about you know pure speed scalability accuracy those things but you know there were other values such as uh, I particularly like the groundedness value you know, we all know that uh language models the way they're trained today um they can they, they make up a lot of information and statistically you can get to the right information you can calculate how to get to as truthful information as possible but we wanted to also include some way of grounding uh that, understanding that they're actually working towards or they're presenting information that's grounded in other existing information. And I think that made a lot of the things we do at Google quite special, um, That you know, having that access to the internet um, and then grounding our language models on it too.
0: Thank you for those examples. I'm actually very curious to ask personally, are there specific kind of topics in ethical tech that interest you and not only just like through your work in google but like what are some of the topics that interest you that you have kind of pursued in your phd or postdoc or just like personally in your life outside of work that you think are worth talking about or that you would recommend you know students who are interested in this topic to continue pursuing at this time
2: yeah um I'd say two come to mind straight away. So my my thesis was purposely about the ethics of care, um, mm. because at the time I felt that a lot of the tech ethics debates um, were either not done by ethicists, so that made it quite difficult, and then when they were practiced by by actual philosophers and ethicists, um, the analysis the analyses I found to often be Tied around virtue ethics, utilitarianism, deontology, these ethical theories that um, give you some guidance on what the right action or what the wrong action is, or why something is justifiable over another thing. And um, I felt all of the three to be pretty limited and everyone agrees that they're limited. But then I thought, okay, let's just go and introduce another one. So I did a lot of reading. I found what I was most interested in, and that is the relationship between the people that build the tech and the millions and billions of people that use the tech. Uh, There's a power relationship there. You know, someone determines through code, black box to some extent, uh, what that engagement looks like, and the others can either accept it or not. Uh, And sometimes, you know, you're a data subject in a large internet research. So you are very vulnerable because you might not even know what's going on. So the ethics of care was a really interesting lens into exploring um, what the ethical considerations could be if you look through the lens of that relationship. Um, And I'd encourage people to do more of that type of work uh you know trying to figure out new angles to take to this work because it 's a it's a, i mean it 's not a new discipline, but as we 're uh, applying it to digital technologies it's it still feels like a relatively new uh discipline especially compared to you know uh discussions on free will and whatever else like of course those are more fundamental but um it's it's a growing really interesting field that has a lot more learning to do. So I think Mm -hmm. especially students, um, whether it's grad students or otherwise, are in a great position to contribute new angles to all of this. Mm -hmm. Um, And another thing I find really interesting is the philosophy of technology. Um, There's such a rich literature there, um, combined also with the literature on science and technology studies, um, where people are thinking deeply about what technology actually is. And um reading that literature over the last decade or so, or what it might be, I think the, the conclusion that I've come to, um and it's not original, but it's that you know technology is first of all inherently um a tool of power. Uh, it extends a human's reach. It extends the things that they can do. If you have access to technology and others don't, you know, you might have an, an actual advantage. So you, as a human, are actually somewhat fused with the technology um, while you're using it. And then your intentions in using the technology sort of shape how the world looks because you suddenly have power over other people. Uh, So I find that one really interesting lens. And I think the other interesting lens is that you know building a technology um, is basically a set of choices that you're making. And by making choices, uh, it can be hundreds, can be thousands of choices, or more even, but each choice Um, gives you different options, obviously, and how you build a technology. So there is this normative ethical element to those decisions that you're making, even if you're not aware of it. And that's where we come in and shed light on the the normative angles of the decisions that people are making. Um, So what, what technology in the end becomes is just an accumulation of the intentions of the designers or the information that they gathered and decided to act on. And That creates a tool of power. Um, and you know, there, there are many other interesting lenses that you can bring to it, but I find those two particularly enlightening for how we have these discussions with engineers, with computer scientists, with you know, industry bodies or academic uh, conferences, um, in Europe's and the likes, uh, you know, their big AI conference. So, really trying to bring that message home and make people articulate their own positions uh, and their own understanding of their position and take them away from the idea that they're just creating a neutral artifact that is based on mathematics, so therefore based on nature and things like that. Like That's far too limited for the amount of power that you have as a developer of
0: these systems. Yeah, definitely. It's so interesting to hear you talk about these topics, because I took a class um, taught by Professor Ruha Benjamin, who for our audiences is a preeminent scholar in kind of technology, race, and discrimination. And we were exactly talking about how, you know, what is the role of these like software developers? Like, how is their relationship when they create this type of technology? Like, we were talking about Cambridge Analytica. We were talking about the Myanmar crisis, about elections. And so, I also wanted to ask you, you know, in recent years, given those few events, and a lot of others that I've t- um, that we've touched upon, um, tech firms have been, you know, under increasing public scrutiny for unethical behavior, whether they decided to do it intentionally or not. Um, and that resulted in the public kind of calling for maybe more regulation of big tech through policy changes. So how have companies like Google been responding to kind of the scrutiny, if any? Um, and how do you see your role in kind of aiding Google and navigating this process?
2: Yeah, that's a very multifaceted question. Um, I think the um, way that Google has to operate is quite transparent, like you can read how we respond to court cases and what the position papers are in policy procedures. I I think it's been very collaborative and open and transparent and actually taking some thought leadership in this and showing clearly how we do think. Um, there are a lot of blogs that you can read on Google's websites. Um, Ken Walker is the, the sort of senior vice president for the legal and policy teams. Uh, and he has periodic updates and people reporting to him do as well. So I, th- I think that's wonderful to see that you know, we're all exploring new territory here, technically, but also socially. Um, and then what you then need to do, uh, and that's also what attracted me to this company at the time, is having that openness and having that, you know, willingness to to engage on the topics, uh, willingness to be criticized, take that feedback back inside. Um, I, I think that's also one of my roles is to be somewhat of a, a feedback loop, so I have that background in, in law and in policy and in, in academia. Um, so I also understand those languages and when something is said there, I'm able to interpret it for, um, engineers. Um, so that's a particularly interesting part of what I do. Um, but yeah, I think thought leadership, um, sounds very sort of arrogant and somewhat cliche, but I think it's super important, uh, as you. Try to be you know technical leader in these types of situations
1: Thanks, Ben. We are enjoying and learning so much in this conversation, so so happy to have you here. We are also curious, Ben, in your opinion, what does the future of ethics and technology look like, and do you have advice for students who are interested in advancing this ethical technology development?
2: Wonderful question. I have a lot of thoughts there. Um, I think I've touched on a few already, which is, uh, you know, become an expert in your discipline, but also gain that interdisciplinary experience. Unless, of course, you want to be a professor of deontological ethics and dive deeply and far beyond Kant. Um, I think that's, that's very respectable if you want to do that. But if you want to go into this line of work, you know f- deeply nuanced critiques of particular strands of thinking aren't going to be particularly useful they'll be useful to help you think logically um but what you need really is the sort of diplomatic art of navigating uh mm-hmm. different ways of thinking where people who think differently might think they're right in their particular context um but how do you then shed light on that uh, and sort of have people self-reflect in a way that's constructive. Um, the only way to learn that, I think, is by doing and doing it again. And even after your fifth failure, especially, you know, the fifth one's going to be the most embarrassing one because you think you know what you're doing and then you don't, it turns out. Keep keep going at it. Keep If you believe that you have something to say there, um, you'll get there, most likely. That said, though, you have to stand on solid footing um and that solid footing comes from in-depth study uh, of a particular topic um i switched around myself a bit between law policy and philosophy and always with this computer science background um but i like to think that i do have some pretty solid footing uh especially in law and philosophy now. Um policy was a wonderful experience, but I don't think I'm a particularly good policy navigator, uh, which is fine. Um it's also not what I do. Um so yeah, you know, being a, a jack of many trades and a master of at least one or two things is gonna help you a lot. Uh and you yeah, know being intentional about that as well. Uh, I see too many people um, feeling like you know they've read or they've done the undergrad course on ethics ethics 101 or something and then they feel equipped to you know have these conversations and that's fine It's, it's they're not bad conversations it's just they miss the depth and they miss the interpretive uh, ability that you would have once you've you've gone further and really understand the nuances of what you're talking about rather than just sort of the high level um, you know Five bullet point summaries of of ethical theories.
1: Great point, thank
0: you. So we're coming to the end of our conversation, and we usually ask our guests one last question. It's pretty similar to the one we just asked you, but are there one or two things you would like to take away, like us to take away as lessons from your journey integrating your passion into your career that students can learn about?
2: Yeah, I love that question. Um, but... I've built my journey, I'd say, around two pieces of advice that I've gotten. Um, One was from my granddad, uh, who who shared my name. Um, And he he was quite successful in what he did. And I I asked him at some point, "How, how did you become so successful? And his answer was that he really he figured out what he enjoyed and what he enjoyed was building teams and, you know, strategize organizational strategizing, those types of things. Like he actually inherently enjoyed it. Like he didn't need to be paid to do that because his mind just worked that way. Um, and it was nice for him to get paid for, for doing it. Um, but what he's, he said was, you know, then he also sort of recognized in I guess twenty-year-old me at the time that I didn't like uh, organizational strategizing and, and managing people. So he, you know, just started asking some questions of like, what do you enjoy? Like, what what, what would you do for free? What what do you read that isn't you know Harry Potter? But like, what's what's sort of more in depth that you that you like to read? And as I started thinking about those questions, I realized it was purely and squarely the intersection of tech and society. Um, and then you have know, the various tools and methods that you have there, which is the law and philosophy and policy on the one hand, and then computer science and design thinking and, and all those things on the other hand. And, you know, I'm also happy that I'm being paid, but even if I wasn't, I'd, I'd still probably be writing about this, uh, you know, angry blogs about how <laughs> the world is not adhering to my way of thinking.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Um. So that's one. And and the other, I think is a really interesting exercise that you can do, which is to uh, think of yourself in X number of years and you're given an award or some kind of recognition for something that you did Um, and you're very proud and you you look at the audience and it's full of people that you know, know, your parents, your siblings, your partner and and their families and and whoever, your friends from school, they're all there and you're being awarded for something, what's that thing that you're being awarded for? And that question was asked to me about four or five years ago and it's still on my mind. Um, And it's not necessarily about doing something for an award, but it is to think through what what do you like to be recognized for and what would you like to leave behind for others to build on? And I think that's something that's very fruitful to think about um, and, and to take on board. As you progress in your studies and think through what you want to do next,
0: thank Love you. Ben. Thank Thanks you so much ben. for those last pieces of wisdom. I've enjoyed the conversation so much, and I'm sure that our listeners, as well as ourselves, have learned a lot. So thank you.
2: Thank you. Thanks for the great questions.